So hi, it's Mike Wheeler and Kim Leary here for another episode of One Step Ahead. Today we're going to be talking to our friend and colleague, Frank Barrett, author of, he's pointing to himself now, author of Yes to the Mess, jazz musician and so forth. Today we're going to talk about what he calls hanging out. I think I have a sense of that, but the notion is it's more than just fun. How does this relate to your work in adaptive leadership? Well, you know, it. I think we're going to hear from Frank that hanging out is really a way that people ask the questions that are most meaningful to them and the ones that we often don't have permission to ask in other contexts. So until you can get at those heart-of-the-matter questions, you're not really placing yourself in an optimal position to learn. Good. Well, let's hear it from, from Frank, and we'll carry the conversation from there. So, Frank, you talked about your teaching having this ex- very significant co- experiential component to it, but also teaching a lot with cases. Right. And part of the case, the most important part of the case, is always the debriefing of that or the simulation. It's a kind of after-action review in the classroom and also in the military. What about with jazz? What's the after-action moment after a gig? Yeah. By the way, it's funny you mentioned cases. Let me just throw this out um, as a... sounds like a non sequitur, but it's related. I realize that I'm a much better teacher when I do the case the first time than when I do it the fifth time. So cases that I've done five years in a row, I I phone it in. I've just gotten to the point where I know what the board's going to look. I know what the, nothing surprises me, and I'm at my worst. And the cases, when I, at the end of the year, when I ask students what were their favorite cases, they always mention the ones I did for the first time. The The new cases. The new cases, the ones where I was most nervous, where I didn't know where it was going to go. And they intuitively know that they must know I'm really paying a lot of attention in those moments. So, and maybe they're watching how you manage that yeah. moment. Yeah, exactly. Because they're they're taking their their cues from you. Yeah, that it could very well be. It's happened. It, it's not an accident. Now that's happened. I think five years in a row that the new the. the Brand new cases are the ones that they like the most, and I think I was best at that. So, but you were asking about hanging out. Um, no, you're asking about after action reviews. And is, is that what hanging out means? After yeah, a action? Bit. Yeah, the, in jazz we call it hanging out. In the military they call it after action reviews because it sounds more formal. One thing that jazz musicians do that I think organizations could learn from is to create this sort of informal, parallel universe, if you want to call it that. We, we hang out after the gig and just talk about anything or do jam sessions. You, just play, you play after playing. Right, play after playing. Just last week I was in Chautauqua and I was interviewing. That's in New York? That's in New York. Yeah. Lake, uh, and the Mar- uh, Wynton Marcellus and the Jazz at Lincoln Center Band was there. And I was interviewing Jason Marcellus in a dining room that was empty because it was quiet. And, and we could hear this music, and I could see he was starting to fade away from me. I was starting to lose him a little bit. He was starting to listen more and more. And at one point he said, I wonder if that's a jam session. And, and the music kept going, and he got a text from somebody, and he said, yes, they're having a jam session. Let's wrap this up now. <laughs> and so he, this is after he'd been, he'd, they had done six hours of rehearsal that day, did a concert, 
And he couldn't wait to go out into the lobby of this hotel and do a jam session where it's just free for all or anybody can play anything they want. It's a, there's a wide openness about it. So, If we're talking about the benefit of doing something the first time, teaching a case, debriefing a case in the classroom, a couple of things to say on that. I think I like the second time, not the first time. Uh -huh. um, and it's thanks to the students because they've seen things in the case, even though I wrote That's it exactly and researched right. it and so forth, that weren't as apparent to me. Yeah. But after that, I think you do go downhill in it. I even had a colleague here at HBS some years ago, Rob Robinson, who wrote an interesting piece for the Negotiation Journal. Sometimes we have two sections where you're teaching the same material twice, back-to-back, 20-minute -back, uh, break between the two. Rob's a very good teacher, and one time he just hit it out of the park in the 8.30 class. Um, so he was really pumped for teaching the one at 10 past 10, and he bombed. And he bombed because he forgot that when he's in that classroom, obviously he's in the front of the classroom, but there are 90 students. And there are more of them than there are of him. And in terms of where they are and what they had done in the class before, clean slate, clean slate. But he had tried basically to replicate it, and that was, um, that was self-defeating. That's happened to me too. You know, some of the teaching we do at the Kennedy School and other places as well, using an adaptive leadership model, the one that Ronnie Heifetz developed, we have students essentially present their experiences as mm -hmm. cases mm -hmm. to the class, to the instructor, so the case is always new. And oh, it captures that moment of discovery, but also what you described of terror as you're mm -hmm. trying to make sense of a, a lot of variables that are unknown to you and pretty well known to the mm -hmm. person who's presenting it. Yes, that's good. That's interesting. The other factor about hanging out I just thought of is that's where informal learning happens. There's a difference between informal learning and formal learning. So. Formal learning is important. You learn your scales, your arpeggios, you learn your chord changes. But informal learning is where you learn the norms. And what one of the things that makes it possible is it's, it's legitimate to ask naive questions. Hmm. In formal settings, you cannot look naive. You've got to look like you know what you're talking about right at the moment you don't. And you just turn yourself into a non-learner. Because it's more important to look good than it is to be good. It's what's that phrase, skilled incompetence. You get better at better at doing the wrong thing. But in informal settings, it's legitimate to ask naive questions. And that's where you can ask what's really on your mind. Yeah. So I have to apply everything to negotiation. We have the great negotiator award most years at the program of negotiation Harvard Law School across the, the river. One time, more than 10 years ago now, we had Lakhdar Brahimi, who's an Algerian, um, UN diplomat who goes to the world's worst places, often impossible situations, but occasionally you can stop the bloodshed. And he said to do what he does, you have to be both arrogant and humble. Yeah. And he said, you have to be arrogant in the sense you're taking on something that everybody else says can't be done. You've got to be humble because no matter how many times you've done things like this, there's going to be a lot to learn. And being able to carry both of those things with you, to have the courage to do something that could be futile, um, and the humility to have what I guess some would call beginner's mind, um, 
I'm not sure that uh, I've perfected that, but I'm ahead of where I was when I was 18 years old. You know, you're reminding me, Mike, of something else that Ambassador Brahimi said that I think is very relevant to what Frank was sharing with us about comping and accompaniment. Brahimi, as I recall, described the negotiation process as accompanying people who were in conflict. Oh, right, right. That's funny. That's interesting. And, you know, you're talking about your own teaching a case for the first time, Frank. Um, I taught for a year a joint course in mediation, joint for Harvard Law School and Harvard MBAs. And I think there were probably 20 from each school, and it hadn't been done before. I'd worked hard, and I had a lot of help on it, but some things were working and some things weren't. Now, I'm not making a blanket characterization of how law students differ from business school students, but at least in this group, maybe because they thought of me as a business school teacher, the law students kind of leaned back and let things happen, whereas the business school students understood that they had some impact, some very positive impact on making the class work. So even if I had framed something incorrectly or had gone off topic or whatever, they they could pull me back. And it was a great feeling, great feeling. Um, and part of that is um, not just that we're lucky and we get 900 people of that ilk, but we socialize them quite deliberately and we tell them that we do, that we have classes with them and we debrief the class afterwards in terms of how it went. And here's what it takes to be a good comper. Mm -hmm. So you don't raise your hand and raise a different subject. You're dealing with what's been said and the, and the discovery, the exploration unfolds along the way, which I guess happens in the same way as music. We don't socialize them where I teach. I think people who have me at the Naval Postgraduate School, I think I'm the only case teacher they have. So at first, they don't know what to do because they're ready to listen to PowerPoints. So you're brand new to them. I'm brand new to them which I love, because they, they realize, and when I say to them at the beginning, you're not allowed to use your, your uh, laptops, they first they're stunned, and always at the end of the class, somebody makes a statement, every single time they'll say, it was great that you didn't let us have our laptops. So sometimes in our classrooms, when we say no laptops, students close their laptops, and sometimes they don't. I bet it's different at the postgraduate center. It's very different. And right. every, every now and then, there'll be somebody with one open, and another student will tell them to shut, to shut it down. So in socialization of the Harvard Business School, not only do we have those classes on how to be a good comper, but the rule is the laptops are down. That's a universal rule on it. And the reason is we want people looking at and listening to okay. one another, not looking at their screens, even if they're assiduously taking notes. Right. You have plenty of time to do that afterwards, but we're all together now and we've got right. a common engagement. So as we talk about what it means to experiment and break the rules, bust them open even in the service of improvisation, this idea of when you use tech in the classroom and when you don't is something that we're seeing in some of our classrooms where students are also pushing back. They're saying, right. you know, uh, we don't use tech the way you all use tech. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's interesting to think about what you're saying in the context of these authority systems, too. Mm -hmm. How do you have the, the, the kind of minimal structure that allows something to proceed, but when do you break the rules? And when is it creative, mm -hmm. or when are you getting yourself and other people in trouble? 
Yeah, good question. Um, I just thought of a story. I'm not sure it's going to relate to what you just said. Let me tell the story because it's a good story. If it doesn't relate, I'll, I'll come back um, because it's, a, um, it's an example of somebody breaking the rules. <clears throat> um, it's a story about Vern Clark, who was the CNO of the Navy CNO in the early 2000s. And CNO is? Chief of Naval Operations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, the number one naval office. He's in charge of the whole Navy. And he was telling a story about when he was, on, I think he was in 04, 05. He was a commander or a captain. And he was captain of the ship. So he was a younger officer, but he was the captain of the ship. And they were coming into a new area where they hadn't, uh, hadn't sailed before. Sit down with sail, but hadn't steered before, and um, because the one of the particular people on the ship who was in charge of navigation was off the ship that day, so there was a sister ship. So he asked, could they have this new person be put? Could he borrow this new person uh, to help them get through this particular area? And the person was on the ship for less than twenty-four hours. And that's the background of this story. There's a fog rolls in, and he can't see the bullnose of the ship. And this guy who is uh, enlisted, probably in E3, um, and you know, maybe maybe that uh, means like maybe seven or eight years in, he's sort of a middle level uh, enlisted guy. He says he comes up. Here's Admiral Clark talking. He comes up and he grabs my arm and he squeezes it and he said, "Sir." If we continue on this course and speed, we will be aground in six minutes. And he said, wow, thank you. I'll t- I got it. And the reason that's rule-breaking is an enlisted man never physically touches an officer, and let alone the skipper of the ship. They had no history with each other. So it wasn't like we're good friends. You know, we, we're, we have a comfort with each other. He absolutely... He jumped through the chain of command. He stopped. Everything went right to this guy. Now, the question is, how did he know he could do that? I always wonder, how did, if he had only been on the ship 24 hours, how did he know he had that much freedom? I, I always puzzle that, and I have students talk about that because I have, I, have I have this on video. I have him telling this story. And I said, how do they know? And they said, um, well, the other, maybe the other people told them, but they said, when you go on a ship, you can tell within 15 minutes what the culture is like. Okay. So that culture is something that people are taking in, in yeah. and processing from the moment they enter into a yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. What What's really marvelous about that story, too, is it reminds us that when we think about being disruptive in an organization, yeah. it's not necessarily a lot of Sturm und Drang. Yeah. It's doing something that is a violation of the usual practices. Right. Yeah. And it may be quite quiet but really effective as it was in this case. It's it's interesting that the touch is in there. He could have used the same words. He could have been just as emphatic, but he had to break the rules. He had to break the rules in order to get the captain to pay attention. He had to make himself uh, brand new. Brand new, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a great story because um, if he'd gone aground, it would have ended his career. Right when you when you ground a ship, you're done, and um, that's why it's a, it's a good story. It's funny you say that. I had a colleague uh, a prior school years ago who was a submariner, submariner, but he wouldn't fly. 
Joe would not get in an airplane, but he was fine going down below. And Joe always said, I wanted to be in a ship where the navigator is run aground. You know, um, somebody who doesn't think he or she is infallible, but knows that they can mess up. Yeah. So sort of take your pick in that regard. I think run aground once. You know? yeah. I think that's, that's, that's the number. So we've been talking about hanging out after action reviews we've been talking about uh, about learning and Kim? we've been talking about this quality of informal learning too yeah. which is different than experiential learning isn't it yeah. frank and mike yeah. what's the distinction you're drawing i think i get it but tell me well even experiential learning can have this performance element where you want to perform well and ask the right questions or have mm -hmm. the right persona but I'm really struck by the naive questions that you have permission to ask when you're hanging out. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that that's where people really ask what's on their minds right. and where they get maybe some of the heart of what it means to develop a facility as a good negotiator or an effective leader. Right, yeah. It's important that um, those moments that there's no agenda. Right? We're used to having agendas for everything. Uh, agendas kill it. It has to be unscheduled time. But I, I wonder, Frank, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, but do we just sort of hope for the stars to be aligned? How do you create an organizational culture? That almost sounds like too rigid a word. Yeah. But, but in an environment, a Petri dish, I'm kind of jumping around from metaphor to metaphor. So it's more likely to happen than not. Again, I think organizations err on the side of too much structure. I mean, I'll just give you an example. In the Navy, um, we're in we're, uh, the Naval Postgraduate School is in Monterey. So when the flag officers come for a two-week or a one-week course, these are admirals. Right? Admirals. Yeah. They have every minute scheduled, and they're sitting in their chairs listening. And I remember I, I said to somebody, "Where's the white space?" One of the guys, and the answer was, "Well, we 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 can't waste their time here." And I made this case, I would bet the, the lasting learning happens when there's no instructor in front of the room and these people are talking informally and, um, and I, they've introduced some of that, uh, but it's organizations err on the side of overstructuring, thinking they're doing the right thing they, and, th and thinking falsely that unscheduled time is wasted time. Unscheduled time can be rich time. I see you nodding your head, Kim. Yeah, it's just such a provocative challenge for those of us who are in organizations and yeah. working within them because what you're really saying is that we might get the biggest bang for our buck, so to speak, from the learning that doesn't have an agenda, right. isn't mandated, yep. and where we can't actually quantify in advance what will be the output. Yeah. You, you know the story about um, Steve Jobs. Have I told this story before? No. Um, when he took over Pixar, uh, they built a new building. It was this gorgeous, the, he, the uh, architects came in and showed him the drawings. And he looked at the drawings, and the drawings for the building were meeting the needs of these introverted engineers who wanted big office spaces, large workbench, so they could tinker with their toys. And whatnot and um he ripped them up and said nope 
and had them redesign it so the engineers had very small offices and a huge open space in the in the middle of the building and in the entire building there's only one bathroom so they have to connect. You're going to see each other whether you want to or not, right? right? You're going to, you're going to, uh, yeah. and yeah. and he said openly, you know, it, it's it's the accidental conversations, or they have all the, all the mail room is in one place where everybody has to go to the same place to get their mail. So yeah. you'll bump into somebody and just have a conversation. So he he knew that that was a rich possibility. And you know, I think that even is playing itself out in certain architectural designs these days beyond the dreaded open offices where people don't have doors that they can close. But in terms of how college campuses, for example, I sit on the board of Amherst College, and as we're thinking about how do you optimally place a student health center, well, you don't want it at the far end of campus. You Mm -hmm. really want it to be at the center of of events so that people, as they're passing through, can get whatever health care or mental health care that they desire. Or they know it's there. Or they know it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been great once again. Um, uh, we've explored a number of things with you in this conversation. What would you say as a, as a close, Kim? I think uh, once again, Frank, you have helped us to use our third ears and uh, to appreciate uh, the very joyful music that can be a part of living in organizations. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you very much. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, you can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on Agile negotiation and adaptive leadership, much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.